0: Word to Luke chapter four, uh, Luke chapter four. Um, this Christmas season, we're going to th- be thinking a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this afternoon, we're going to be in our systematic theology class. It meets at four o'clock uh, in the overflow. Uh, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of Christ, uh, looking at key passages in the Old and the New Testament, kind of relating who the person of Jesus Christ is and. Um, and what did he do? Uh, so if you have uh, done your reading, I want to encourage you to come, uh, but if you haven't, and you're just intrigued on who this person of Jesus Christ is, and how do I really know what the Bible says about Jesus, I would ask you to come uh, this, this afternoon at four o'clock in, in the overflow as we look at that specific doctrine. Uh, well, um, we have a great privilege today to hear from one of our brothers. Uh, Trell Ross is going to be preaching uh, for us in a, in a moment. Uh, those of you who know, uh, we have been uh, gifted a, a Sylvia Circle property, and their Asked us to help relaunch that congregation. Uh, Trail is going to be taking over that mantle um, uh, in about six months. Uh, Before that, he's going to be going to uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church and doing an internship uh, under leadership of Mark Dever in uh, Washington, D.C. So we won't see him for about six months. Uh, He'll be there uh, serving uh, faithfully and learning uh, more about the church. Uh, so, we want to get a chance to, to hear him twice today, this morning, as we think about um, Luke chapter 4, and then this evening, as we think about a specific doctrine uh, of Christ, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So, I encourage you to be, come back tonight. Uh, but as I, uh, after we read, I'll pray, and then the Trey will come up and bring God's word to us. So, at this time, as we prepare our hearts to hear the word of God, please stand for the preaching, reading of God's word. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned, in the power of the Spirit of Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where it had been brought up. where He had brought, brought, brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Please be seated. Pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to you in praise and confession. We have given our resources unto you, God. You are a God that is gracious and kind to tell us to bring all our requests before you, so we do so now. Father, we pray for the needs of our congregation. Father, we do pray for all children and parents who are estranged from family this Christmas season. We pray, God, that you and your kindness would call them home. God, that you would convict them by the power of your spirit, Lord, uh, to bring reconciliation. We pray, God, by your merciful hand that you would do this. Father, we, we pray for all those who are who are facing job transitions. God, we pray that you would be gracious and kind to the hearts of your people, that they would boast in you and, your, and trust you. We pray, God, that you would open up new doors that need to be opened and you would close doors as you see fit. We pray you'd be gracious to your people in that way. We also just pray that you'd be with those who are battling sickness. Father, uh, we, we pray that you and your kindness would just meet them, Father, those who are, are dealing with uh, acute sickness and those who are dealing with chronic things. We pray, God, spe- specifically for uh, Brenda Davenport this morning. We pray, God, that your hand will be upon her as she's uh, back home recovering uh, with her family. We pray, God, that you give her a season of rest and, and favor with her body. We also just pray for John Talkington as, as he continues to battle cancer. And Father Dave Thomas, Lord, we, we pray that you give him strength in his legs as he continues to go and visit and serve um, our, our church body, Father, we also just pray for uh, all uh, our children as they go to our classes. We pray, God, that they would have soft and receptive hearts. Lord, we pray that they would hear the gospel and believe. God, that this season of Christmas, would they would not be wrapped up in the consumer uh, consumerism of our age, but God, that they they would have hearts that would be longing for Christ. And we pray as as adults, as parents, we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom on how we can shepherd and and, and guide our young. Um, the young hearts in our homes to love you and not to love the things of this world, Father. We also just pray for the nations. We pray for uh, Albania today. We, we pray that the gospel would be rich there. We pray for Pastor Jency as he's uh, preaching today. We pray, God, that you would fill that church up. God, we we know that that's church that the nation has been experiencing tremendous earthquakes. We pray that you would use your church to to care for those who are hurting. That some would come to know you because of the of the kind, generous. Um, generosity and faithful preaching uh, of, your, of your church there. Father, we also just pray for our own uh, nation. We do pray that you would be raising up uh, judges, Father, who, who value life, Lord. Uh, we, we pray that you would eradicate abortion in our land, and we pray that you would do so even uh, by bringing godly judges to sit on the, on, 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 on the Supreme Court uh, who value life, Lord. Father, we, we, we submit them to you, Lord, let them understand as they judge, that they will also be judged by you. Father, we also just pray for the gospel to go forth in our, in our community. We pray for Pastor Ray Long at Union Baptist Church. God, I thank you so much for his heart for revival. We pray as he preaches your word, Lord, that you would build him up and build that church up more and more into its likeness. We pray you'd give him wisdom, Father, and especially in terms of potential transition. We pray, God, that you and your kindness would, would just be with that church body. And now, God, we pray for for this preaching of the Word. We thank you so much uh, for the gift of your Word that that refines and grows your people into your image. We pray for trail as he comes and brings the word of life, God. We pray that he would decrease and that you would increase as he announces the Lord Jesus Christ that you would call men and women, boys and girls, unto yourself. We pray, God, that we as your people, as, as we are sitting and hearing your word, that we would not have opposition in our hearts, that we would be pushing against it, but, God, that we would be receptive to, have, to hear what you have for us. Convict us of sin, O oh God. Uh, lead us in, in, in righteousness, we pray. God, we pray that you would help us see the value of of the mission field, God, that we would take the eyes off of living only for ourselves and living for the kingdom of God. So Father, we pray that you would use our dear brother as he brings your word, that you would refine us through him, and that you would grow us, become a church that better reflects your glorious character and will. We ask now that you would make us receptive, that you would strengthen us. We ask this for our good, but ultimately for your glory's sake. We ask this in the name of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Well, good morning, Park Baptist. It's always a lot of fun and a privilege to be with y'all. Uh, like Dave said, my name is Trill, and uh, my wife, Lauren, and I are moving here to plant uh, the forthcoming Pioneer Church in um, about six months. And while I'm talking about that, I just want to thank all of you that um, were able to make it to the last service that Sylvia Circle had a couple of weeks ago. I know that I can speak for myself and Lauren and for those members and say that everyone involved felt greatly encouraged uh, just to see family from here and from our home church coming to, to celebrate all that the Lord is going to do through the forthcoming church and all that He did in the last church. We're, we're really, we're really encouraged by y'all. So thank y'all for, for coming out for that. Um, Would you join me for another moment of prayer? Father, I come to you in this moment thanking you for the privilege to sit and be edified by your word. God, I thank you for you being a gracious God who's given us your word so that as we strive to live this life for your glory, we might be a people who are continuously edified and sanctified and made more like you. I pray for the hearts and minds in this room this morning and ask that you would do just that, that you'd build your people up. God, would you help us to see what it looks like to be bold in carrying the message that you've blessed us with and to be bold in being used by you in the miracles that you perform in this earth? God, I pray and ask that you would help us to be resilient as we may encounter rejection and ridicule, as we strive to stand boldly for you. God, would you give us all a great commitment to reflecting you in the mission that you came to fulfill during your time on earth? God, I pray for myself and ask that you would make up for my human inadequacies. Would you use me, God, as a mouthpiece, as a tool to proclaim your word so that your people may be edified and so that you may be glorified? It's in your son's holy name that I pray, and it's on your spirit that I depend amen. Luke chapter 4. While you're going, I want to tell you a quick story. So I was blessed with the privilege of playing college football. And I'm sure that most of us who are sports fans know that one of the most exciting parts of sports for a high school athlete is that period where you're being recruited from high school into college. And if a university does a good job of recruiting you, they, they tend to bring you up on a a personal visit to their school, and while you're there they kind of roll out the red carpet, as people like to say. And a lot of the times they'll have one or two, uh, or a group of recruits come on a trip together, that way when you get there you've got friends and you've got a relationship that kind of ties you to their school. And with the college that I ended up signing with, they did a great job of putting a trip like this together. They brought myself and another recruit from the state of Georgia up at the same time, And, man, we went on a visit, and we thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. matter matter of fact, we enjoyed ourselves so much that we communicated throughout the time uh, uh, that we were both kind of deciding which school we were going to go to. And then when we figured we're both going to this school, we decided we'd be roommates for our freshman year. And I look back on this, and I can say that it was genuinely a match made in heaven. But it wasn't a match made in heaven because I enjoyed having this guy's roommate. This was a match made in heaven because I think that God in heaven made this match so that I might be sanctified. He ended up being a terrible roommate. Y'all know that quote, uh, first impressions last a lifetime? That's not true. Don't believe it. It is a lie. <laughs> this guy was the worst. Uh, he was the junkiest person I've ever met in my life. He was the kind of guy that would he take trash or laundry and he tossed it just four inches to the right of the container that the the trash and laundry was supposed to go in. And then in addition to being messy, he was also a guy that had a really loud hobby. He was a DJ for those rock and roll, uh, rave techno kind of parties. And he always wanted to practice his skills in our room. And I remember looking at him one day and thinking to myself, it's like, man, I've never even met anybody another black person that listens to rock and roll, but you're the DJ at the parties. (laughs) Now, the worst part about all of this is that it caught me completely off guard. See, after I had met this guy on our visit, I formed some expectations for the kind of roommate he'd be. I agreed to have him as a roommate because I thought he might meet certain expectations that would make me happy. And then within the first few weeks of us being on campus, I saw all of my expectations be ripped apart. He was the opposite of what I expected. And in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, we can see Jesus and kind of liken him to my college roommate because he also debunks some expectations that were set for him. There was a group of of people in Jesus' hometown and they had formed some selfish expectations for what Jesus' ministry should be like. And what Jesus shows up and he tells them, don't know. No, no. I'm not about meeting the expectations of a selfish group of people. See, Jesus was sent with a mission to accomplish, and that mission was to save lost people, not to perform for selfish people. So I want to give you all my outline. I'm going to read the passage again in a moment, but I want to give you my, my outline before we get there. As we study this passage today, I want us to answer this question. How do we reflect Jesus in mission? How do we reflect Jesus in mission? And I think this passage makes two answers pretty clear. The first answer is that we should be bold as we carry the message and the miracles. We should be bold as we carry the message and the miracles. And then the second answer is we should be resilient as we endure rejection and ridicule. We should be resilient as we endure rejection and ridicule. So I want you all, uh, just to kind of loosen up a little bit, do me a favor. I want you look at your neighbor and say, bold with the message, <laughs> and then say, bold with the miracles. Now look at your other neighbor. They want to hear from you this morning too. Say resilient in rejection and resilient in ridicule. Amen. Bold with the message, bold with the miracles, resilient in rejection, and resilient in ridicule. Jesus was all of these things, and we see that clearly in Luke 14, or Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. Um, I know Dave read the passage, but I'm preaching from the CSB, and I want to read through verse 30. Uh, so, would y'all just stand again with me in honor of God's Word being read. This is Luke chapter 4. We're starting at verse 14. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated. So we see in the beginning of this passage, Jesus is, is, is headed back to his hometown in Nazareth, uh, and he's taking with him the reputation of being a great teacher. It says, uh, the text says that people are praising him, and news about him and his teaching is spreading throughout the entire vicinity. So it seems here that it's pretty clear that at this point, the people like Jesus and they're excited about all the things they're hearing about him. But if we recall what the end of the passage says, we know that their attitude towards him changes between this point and the point of them wanting to hurl him over the cliff at the end of the passage. And I want us to read this passage without forcing our Sunday school understanding of why this takes place. Because we can easily come to this and say, oh yeah, like those people are Jews. Uh, Of course they don't like Jesus. You know, the Jews don't like Jesus because they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. He said he was the Messiah. We understand that. That's clear all throughout Scripture. But I think this passage actually sets us up to understand how the Jews end up getting there. See, we see they like him in the beginning, but they end up not liking him after his encounter with them in the temple. And it's likely that this isn't only because of unbelief, but this is also rooted in their expectations being unmet. Luke tells us in chapter 1 of this gospel that he's written this as an orderly account for us to understand Jesus' ministry. And now this doesn't mean orderly in the sense of it being uh, in chronological order. But what this is talking about is is Luke seems to have written this in an order that would help us to see a gradual unfolding of Jesus' time on earth. And in seeing that, hopefully we have these different pieces of the story to kind of build on one another and end up all fitting together. So I believe Luke puts this here so that we would read it. And when we read it, that we'd see it as a foundation for how Jesus' encounters with the Jews was going to play out throughout the entirety of his gospel. And what we should see in this foundational encounter is that Jesus shows up. The Jews have expectations for what their Savior was to be like. And then Jesus tells them, I'm the Savior, but I ain't about your expectations. And this sets a trend where their attitudes towards him changes and changes they continue to reject him as a savior. So this begins the trend of them rejecting him. And it all starts when Jesus stands to read the prophecy we see in verses 18 through 19. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've titled this message, Missional Mirrors. Missional Mirrors. And the reason I gave it that title is because I think when we read this prophecy, we should see the actions mentioned here as transcendent actions that we should reflect Christ in. So, Missional Mirrors, we want to be a reflection of Christ. We know that God has been doing the work of redemption ever since sin introduced the need for redemption back in the garden, right? Right? And in this prophecy, God is giving insight into the redemptive work that he does. When Isaiah penned this in the Old Testament, God was using him to point to the great worker that was coming. Now, when Jesus stood up and read this, he stood and read it as the great worker that was being pointed to. And when we read this, we should read as workers that are called to reflect the great worker and the work that he did. Isaiah pointed, Jesus fulfilled, and now we get to reflect. So when it says that there's an anointing to preach good news to the poor, Man, praise God for that. Or when it mentions that there's an anointing to proclaim release to captives, man, give God glory for that. Or or, or when it says that there's some sinning that happens so that proclamation of recovered sight can be made to the blind, man, praise God that he might use us. When we read this prophecy, guys, we should see these actions as transcendent actions, true of Isaiah, true of Christ, and oh, praise God that they might be true of us as well. It's a great blessing, friends to be sinners that God is still willing to graciously redeem and use in his redemptive work. It's a great blessing to be used in his redemptive work. And I want to spend some time looking at a few specifics about this redemptive work that's mentioned. If you look at the actions that are mentioned in verse 18 you'll see that most of them end with a physical condition being affected, but they begin with what seems to be verbal proclamation. A couple of them don't even make logical sense. Uh, To proclaim release to captives or to proclaim recovery of sight, that doesn't make logical sense when we read it that way. We see physical miracles happen as a result of Jesus proclaiming a message. And I don't believe these miracles are only metaphorical in the spiritual sense. I think they're both metaphorical and literal. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he did literally serve the poor. He did literally heal the blind. He did literally free the oppressed. So in verse 21, when Jesus says that the prophecy is fulfilled as he read it, he shows us that his mission was about both these miracles that he performed and the message that he came proclaiming while he did. And that should communicate to us today that the two are not to be separated. So I think we as Christians sometimes prioritize one to the extent of of, of neglecting the other. But this passage teaches us that they should go hand in hand just as much as they're tied together in the prophecy. See, I think some of us have the tendency to be so hard and fast on truth that we see physical needs in the people that we're sharing truth with, but we limit ourselves as if God has only armed us with truth. We want to tell who Jesus is without uh, reflecting him by offering a meal. Or we want to tell who Jesus is without getting involved in the messiness of people's lives in order to show them who Jesus is. And then there's others of us, man, we... We've got it down when it comes to being used by God in the work of his miracles. But we refuse to open our mouths and to share his message as he uses us in these miracles. So we love to roll our windows down and, 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 and to give the, the homeless person on the street $20. Or we love to, to take the Operation Christmas Child boxes and beat out the amount that we filled last year by 10 or we love to, to hear about a coworker that's struggling and then invite them over to have dinner with us. There's nothing wrong with, with any of these things. Nothing's wrong. But the fault that we can have in the midst of all of this is that we can be doing all of these things. We can be a great blessing in the form of miracles while being absolutely paralyzed with fear of just opening our mouths and sharing the blessing in the form of the message. We can be such an incredible blessing in the form of miracles, but have an absolute fear of just opening our mouths and telling people. Just opening, look, just opening our mouths and saying, hey man, the reason you're sitting across this table from me right now is because I've been saved into a loving relationship with an incredible God. And see, this relationship grants me unshakable joy, not because I have all my physical needs met, but because I have my biggest spiritual need met. See, I'm saved into this relationship because Jesus Christ loved me enough to put on human flesh, leave heaven and come to earth, die uh, on, on a cross, be, resurre- or be buried and then resurrected after three days, also that my sins could be atoned for. He loved me enough to do that, and the reason you're sitting across the table from me in my house right now is because it's my hope that you'll look beyond me, see Christ, and realize that he is the God who's worthy of you submitting to and worshiping with all that you have. We're we're fearful of just opening our mouths and telling people that. But we cannot separate the message and the miracles. God has called us to be used in sharing both. Next thing I want to point out, this prophecy says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me. He has sent me. And now when Jesus stands and reads the prophecy, he applies all of these characteristics to himself. And now that may confuse some of us because you know, Jesus is, is God. He's the divine God who created all things. So how can he be anointed or sent by someone else? But what this shows us isn't any inferiority of Jesus, but this highlights his humble posture of service and his submission to God the Father. See, Jesus makes clear when he reads his prophecy that he has willingly submitted to the Father, and he's kind of taken on the posture of, of deference in order to fulfill the mission that he was sent for. He submitted, he left heaven, he came to earth, he limited himself by putting on human flesh, and he did all of this because he loves the poor, because he loves the blind, because he loves the oppressed. But most importantly, he wanted to save us all from our greatest problem. He wanted to save us from the problem of sin and eternal damnation. Jesus left the comfort of heaven to do that on behalf of us. Now, the question we must ask ourselves is this Do we reflect Christ by being willing to give up comfort for the sake of sharing both His message and being used in His miracles? Do we reflect Him in that way? Lauren and I were headed here to Rock Hill a few weekends ago and. just after we got outside of Raleigh, uh, between uh, Raleigh and Durham, we passed this house that had at least 40 buzzards just kind of camped out on the roof. 40 buzzards just sitting there on the roof of this house. And I mean, the house didn't look to be too old. You know, it, w- it was kind of run down, but I've seen worse houses before. But I kid you not, there were at least 40 buzzards just kind of camped out on every corner of the roof of this house. And Lord and I couldn't believe what we'd seen. So as we continued driving, we're just kind of talking about it like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, like I've seen that on cable lines, but I've never seen anything like that on the roof of a house. Uh, We're just like, what could be in the house that uh, is dead and and causing so many buzzers to just camp out on the roof? We're just kind of having this conversation. And then Lauren said something that caught my attention. She says, you know, babe, um, I feel conflicted because I kind of want to know what could be in there and what's wrong, but at the same time, I don't want to go anywhere near whatever it is. And I thought to myself, hmm, I think we do this as Christians sometimes. See, I think we kind of sit back and say, and, and look at the world and, and observe the sin and the death and all the problems in the world and say, hmm, man, it's clear to me. There's, there's something, something clearly wrong there, and I feel conflicted because the Christ in me says, go be used in it, but I'd much rather hang back here and remain comfortable. Now all I've got to say is that I'm so glad Jesus didn't take on this mentality when it came to saving me. He left heaven. He came to earth. He proclaimed his message and performed many miracles. And as a result, lost folks like us, we get to call ourselves saved and safe in him. So might we commit to reflecting him in that? might we commit to reflecting the mission of Christ by carrying both message and miracle? Another thing I love about this passage is that Jesus specifies the message that he's talking about. Look with me at the last clause of the prophecy. Says, Jesus says, he will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that terminology, year of the Lord's favor, What that's referencing is the Old Testament year of jubilee. And now the year of jubilee in the Old Testament was a festive year that came around every 50 years. And it's where God told his people in Leviticus chapter 25. You can go read it for yourselves later if you want to. But God tells his people that they were to set this year apart as a holy year where they stopped working the fields uh, and and they just kind of lived off of what had already been harvested. And most importantly for our discussion, this was also the year where all debts were forgiven. So if I was a landowner and I had sold you land so that you could grow crops, if you got behind on the debt that you owed me for the land, it was a major problem for you because debt was a serious thing in their culture. But whenever the year of Jubilee rolled around, it was a common understanding amongst God's people that all debts would disappear. And with this disappearance of debt, God was glorified through the relationships that were preserved and, 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 and restored by loan forgiveness. So what Jesus says when he stands to read this prophecy that mentions the favor, or the year of favor or the year of jubilee, what he's saying is that he's going to take this Old Testament understanding of loan forgiveness, and instead of waiting 50 years, he would proclaim it as an everyday thing for those who needed their greatest debts, their greatest debts forgiven. Friends, I'm so glad that when the truth of the gospel is proclaimed, it doesn't take a cycle of years to pass before my sinful debts are forgiven. But the moment we place our faith in this truth, the moment we place our faith in the truth about who Jesus is, we receive instant forgiveness for the debt that would otherwise send us to hell. Jesus didn't leave room for any ambiguity about what message he referred to. And nor did he leave room for ambiguity about what the proclamation of that message meant for those who would believe it. And this is a pretty big deal for us today. Because we live in a society that wants to take a bunch of half-truths, a bunch of truths that aren't actually true, and try to make them about God when those things really aren't. See, the very fact that this prophecy so clearly points to the true gospel, that eliminates any chance for distortion of the message or proclamation of a false gospel to be defended. It'd be easy to look at the first part of this prophecy and say, oh yeah, I see that, like, I'll acknowledge God as the the loving God who wants to give good news and and to give healing and to give freedom and all of these pleasurable things that we sign up for any day. But when we get to the last clause, we see that while the year of the Lord's favor is also a good thing, It points to the gospel that forces us to grasp with what it means for us to surrender our lives to God in order to see the debt of our sin disappear. The year of Jubilee was specific to God's people. And when it's mentioned here, it's pointing to forgiveness that is still specific for the group who submits to and follows Jesus. And just as a side note, friends, this is one reason I'm so excited for what God is gonna do through Pioneer Church. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited. I was talking with a guy that I met while Lauren and I were home for Thanksgiving. And I started asking him uh, just a few questions about his faith. So, you know, I said, um, um, do you practice any kind of faith of any sort? And he answered, he said, yeah, yeah, uh, I go to church. So I said, okay, cool, cool. What church do you go to? And he named the church, and it was a church of Christ that was local to my hometown. And he told me, he said, yeah, I've been going there with my grandma ever since I was a child. So I said, oh, okay, really cool. So you're a Christian then? And he said, yeah, 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 I'm I'm that one. I'm a Christian. So I asked him. I said, well, what does that mean to you? And a young man who had been going to a Christian church for several years He looked at me and he said, you know, doesn't that mean that we believe in God, but kind of at the same time, we don't? This was a guy who was raised in church, raised in church in my hometown. But he didn't even know where to begin to tell me about the hope that the church is supposed to stand for. This wasn't someone from overseas, it wasn't someone in an unreached country. This was someone from right here in Bible Belt America, in a town very similar to Rock Hill, South Carolina. And the reason I tell this story is because I'm willing to bet it's a more common story than we realize. I think there are churches all throughout the Bible Belt that meet every week and do church stuff with churchy messages without including the most important, specific message about Jesus' death and resurrection. There are so many diluted messages being offered that the one of true substance is kind of being tossed to the back burner and to the wayside. So many diluted messages that paint God in this light of him being either distant and, and impersonal or just a genie that you can call on when you need something. And as a result, there are people in our backyards who think they're Christian and who think they're saved, but they have no clue what it's like to know and live in a truly intimate relationship with the God who created us. And this is a problem because when Romans 10 poses the question, how will they call on or believe in Jesus unless the message is preached, it isn't talking about a, general, uh, a generic message about some foreign, impersonal God. It's talking about the specific message of Jesus' death and resurrection, the everlasting year of Jubilee. This is the truth that changes lives, and this is the truth that all people need. If you look at all the other proclamations mentioned in the prophecy, you'll see that this is the only one not aimed at a specific group. To the poor, to the poor, Jesus might proclaim good news of promised wealth in heaven, and they may be led to trust in him. To the blind, he might proclaim recovery of sight, and they might uh, see him for who he truly is. To the captives, yes, he might proclaim freedom, and then they credit their lives to him. But the truth of the matter is that even if you have sight, even if you're wealthy, even if you have freedom, at the end of the day, we're all still sinful people who need that last proclamation that's mentioned. We need to know that Jesus can rescue us from the problem that every human soul has had ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. He can rescue us from the problem of sin and displacement from him. Our greatest problem, Jesus is able to rescue us from. So it's my hope and prayer that God might allow Pioneer Church to boldly proclaim this great, specific, life-changing message. It is also my prayer that we'd all uh, be led to proclaim it in all that we do but one thing we got to realize as we carry this message and allow God to use us in his miracles is that it won't always be easy. We will see difficulty on this mission, but in those times we're given another opportunity to reflect Christ in another way. Not only was Jesus bold as he carried the message and the miracles, but he was also again to our second point, resilient as he endured rejection, as he endured rejection and ridicule. If we keep reading we'll see where Jesus eventually has his life threatened by this group. He was being praised as he was on his way to the temple. Then he gets there. They hand him the book of Isaiah to read and preach from. Jesus stands up and he reads the prophecy that we just looked at. And then he begins preaching by telling them that the prophecy is fulfilled as he's standing in their midst. And remember, the people like what he's saying to them at first. But then they start to remember. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. whoa, Whoa. Wait a minute. He's saying all of this stuff. But this is just old Jesus. This this is Joseph's boy from down the street. We've watched this kid grow up, and now he comes in here and he's teaching us? Well, what else can he do? So Jesus sees where they're headed with that question, and then he makes this statement in verses 23 through 24. No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So Jesus tells them, you're going to want to see me do certain things for reasons that are about you and your expectations, but I'm not here to perform according to what you expect. Then he mentions two Old Testament prophets that were rejected by Israel, and he, compare, excuse me, he compares himself to them. But he doesn't compare himself to him to say that he wasn't for Israel, but he compares himself to say that he is for those who accept him as he comes instead of trying to force expectations for what they want him to be. But like we've already looked at and said, they're not willing to accept Jesus as he comes. So he's about to endure rejection and ridicule. But before we look at that specifically, I want to point out another thing that I'm really, that as I was reading this passage made me pretty excited. So Jesus mentions these two prophets. You've got Elijah, who was from Israel, but he was rejected, and he ended up being sent to, to minister to a foreign widow. And then you have Elisha, who was rejected, and he ministered to Naaman, who was also a foreigner. Now, if you go back and read these stories, you'll see where both foreigners end up accepting the truth that the prophets proclaimed. If you read 1 Kings seventeen twenty four you'll see where uh, the widow tells Elijah that she knows he is a man of God and that God's word from his mouth is true. And then in 2 Kings 5, Naaman gets healed and he takes an entire group with him to tell Elisha, I know there is no God in the whole world except the God of Israel. In both these cases, we see foreign people experience miracles, but they also accept the truth about who God is. And again, this is another reason I'm excited about what God may do through Pioneer Church. See, these examples show us that the requirement for being unified in worship unto God is not a requirement of having the same economic status or being of the same ethnicity or, or any other characteristics that we as humans might try to make it about. These examples show us that the requirement is belief in the truth about who God is and what He does and then a willingness to submit to and worship Him. So I'm also praying that God would allow Pioneer church to be a church of people who are different in many ways, but united in the most important way. I'm praying that we'll be united in worship unto him in a way that gives a glimpse of what this unity is going to look like in heaven. It's a great prayer of mine. So how is Jesus resilient as he endures uh, ridicule and rejection? Jesus tells them about these prophets, and they understand what he's getting at. And then in verse 28, he tells us after hearing this, or the text tells us that after hearing this, they became enraged. They get so mad that the text says they drove him out of town and wanted to hurl him over the cliff. They were going to kill him. But I want us to notice the way Jesus handles this. There's no dialogue from Jesus recorded after they get mad. So it almost seems as if Luke tells us about how mad they were just so they see the extent or or so we would see the extent of their self-centeredness. You know those friends that are are, are always involved in an an argument and the worst thing that you can do to them is while they're arguing just kind of go silent and, and watch them self implode as they continue finishing the argument themselves. It seems as if these are those kinds of people. So they're mad and they drive Jesus to the edge of town. But Jesus had intentions of going there anyways. See, the thing about this is that while they were upset, Jesus was unmoved because he knew that he was sent by the Father to accomplish his mission. And therefore, it was impossible for him to be killed before he finished what he came to do. The text says he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So what we see is that Jesus' resilience it doesn't tell him getting upset and defensive and, and going toe to toe with his daughters. He simply remains calm and moves on to the next task, trusting and knowing that the mission would be accomplished. And I think we should reflect him with this kind of resilience. In this day and age where the majority of our culture wants to act as if there's no absolute truth. We will face ridicule and rejection as we proclaim the specific message of who Christ is. But we've got to be resilient as our Savior was. He was resilient because he knew the mission would be accomplished. We can be resilient because we know the mission has been accomplished. Proclaim the message. Be used in God's miracles. Endure the rejection and ridicule. All for the sake of being committed to reflecting Christ in his mission. So, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word. Thank you for all the revelation that you may have brought to your people through this message. Pray and ask that it wouldn't return void, but that we, as your people, would take the things that you convicted us about. Take the the ways that you've encouraged us this morning. And be compelled to act. Might we be bold with your message and your miracles? Might we be resilient in endurance of rejection and ridicule? Would you gift us with the opportunity to reflect you in your mission? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
0: This next song is, is a simple song. Uh, it's, it's a song we. we